Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Samach Aleph Amad Aleph. The Gemara begins, Amar Buna Marav Mishum Rabbi Meir, Olam Yudvarav Shaladam Muatim. Person should be sparing in his words. Lifnei Kodesh Baruch when he's speaking to a Kodesh Baruch Shenamar, they quote the pasuk from Kohelet, Al Tivahel Al Picha. Don't be so quick or rash to speak. Velibcha Ayimaher Lotzi Davar, and your heart should not be hasty to say things. Lifnei Alukim before God. Ki Alukim Bashamayim. God's up in the heavens, and you're down below on earth. Therefore, your words should be sparing or few. The idea being, when the person is above, they have the strategic advantage. And clearly, when we're talking about a Kodesh Baruch Hu is above and has that strategic advantage, as well as the fact that he is the all-knowing being, then, of course, when you are relating to a Kodesh Baruch Hu, you should be sparing in your words. Now, whether this connects to the previous Gemara, which spoke about Yisurim and the obligation to say a bracha of Diana Emet on Yisurim, on bad things that happen, as well as Rabbi Akiva's approach that he learned from his Rebbe, Nachum Ishkamzu, Lo Le'am Yehei Adam Ragil Omar, Kol David Rachman Atavavid, and then this is following that and saying, in a situation of difficulty or Yisurim, a person should be sparing in their words, and they should not be accusatory of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and they should be careful as to what they say so they don't blaspheme in these situations. That's the view of the Maharsha, that this is a continuation of the previous Gemara. On the other hand, you could see the Gemara here being totally independent, and this could be just good advice with regards to davening in general, that a person should be sparing in their words when it comes to davening and beseeching Hashem, because too much speaking could lead to too much questioning of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and that could lead to bad results, because you know in the end that Hashem is right, like we say in Azino, Atzurtamim Palo, Kikol Durachav Mishpat, Kelemuna Veinovel, Tzadik Veyasharhu. So, of course, Baruch in the end is always right, and therefore, we don't necessarily have the right to question the ways of Kodesh Baruch versus the way that Marshav used it as a continuation of the previous Gemara, where he shouldn't ask to stop or block the Yisurim that are happening to him, because that might lead to other thoughts in his mind as to the fact that those Yisurim are unjustified, or that somehow there's some sort of perversion of justice that is being carried out towards him. Darash Rav Nachman bar Rav Chista, my dichtiv, what is meant by the pasuk at the beginning of the creation, Vayitzer Hashem Elokim et Adam, Vishnei Yudin. It says there, Vayitzer, and it reads Vayitzer with two Yuds. Shnei Yitzarim bara Kodesh Baruch Hu. Kodesh Baruch Hu created man with two desires. Achad Yitzer Tov, Achad Yitzer Ra. He has a good inclination and a bad inclination. And that is hinted to by the fact that there are two Yuds found in the word Vayitzer, where the word in the Pesach means that God created, but the Gemara is taking the word to mean Yetzer, which is inclinations or desires, and therefore the two Yuds hint to the fact that there is a good inclination and a bad inclination within the individual. If that's true, where there is no word Vayitzer that is written, let Yitzra, it does not have desires. Now, first of all, the word Vayitzer does appear by the Behema. It just appears with one Yud, which would seem to imply that it only has one Yitzer. And the assumption would be that it has a Yitzer Hatov because it only does what's instinctive to it. It only does what a Baruch Hu embedded in the animal. The problem is that we see the Mazko Vinashko Bubato, that they do damage, they bite, and they kick. They do things that are seemingly evil or negative, and therefore we would assume that they also have a negative inclination. If that's the case, so then why is it by the animal, it's only written by Yitzer with one Yud and not with two Yuds? And that is that Behemoth seem to have something similar to man. We're not talking about 
Yitzhar Tov and Yitzhar with regards to doing mitzvot or following the word of Hashem, but rather in the character of the individual. So the character of the individual can go to the good or can go to the bad. But animals also, they have certain character traits that are helpful, positive, but they also have negative character traits that are destructive and problematic. So if that is true by man, and it's true by behemah, then the word used for the description of their creation should have been the same. Ella kid Rabbi Shimon Pazi, but rather it must be like what Rabbi Shimon Pazi says, I'm Rabbi Shimon Pazi, oili mi yotsri, oili mi yitsri. He says that the two yuds there don't refer to the two yitzers, rather there is a single yitzer, that is the drive or the inclination, and the problem is that you are pulled in both directions. If I follow my yetzer, I follow my desires, then oili mi yotsri. Then woe to me from my creator, because then I'll have to face my creator and answer for the fact that I didn't follow the ways or the commands of my creator. Instead, I followed my desires. On the other hand, if I follow the ways of the yotsri, my creator, then oili mi yotsri. Then my desires will always be tugging and pulling at me because I won't be fulfilling them. I won't be giving in to them and they'll plague me all the time because I'm doing what's right. And so the two yuds, as if it's written vai vai, woe from one, the yotsri, and woe from yitsri, which express those two sides of a person, the want or desire to follow the ways of the creator, and his desire or want to follow his his more base inclinations. It's not clear here whether the Gemara has rejected the idea that there is a Yitzhar Tov or Yitzhar Hara, or it's simply rejecting the Limud from Vayitzer, and then they learn something else from Vayitzer. I'd like to think that there is a fundamental change here in the view of the Gemara, because it uses the word Ella, which generally means that it's a rejection of the previous assumption of the Gemara and moves to a new assumption, that is that the Gemara is saying here that there really is only one Yetzer within the individual. Yetzer means desires or inclinations. The question is, which direction do those desires and inclinations take you? A person can harness that's what's inside of him, both for the positive and for the negative. And we see this in the Gemara and Sanhedrin and the Gemara and Yoma with the incidents. It's where the Anshe Knesset HaGadolah destroy the Yetzer and that has ramifications. You can't just destroy a Yetzer and then have it be that all the bad goes away and no good is affected by it. And that's because inherently there is a drive to do something. That drive can be harnessed can be reined in and used for good, or it can be released and used for bad. And that may be what the Gemara is saying over here, that it's only one inclination, and the only question is, who's going to be bothering you? Who's going to be plaguing you? Is it going to be Yotzer or the Yetzer? Meaning that, which direction are you being pulled in? Are you being pulled in a direction where you're doing the right thing, and therefore your base instincts are trying to drive you in the other direction? Or you find your base instincts, and your guilty feelings, or a Kosh Baruch Hu is going to then make you accountable for that what you did. Inami, the other possibility of darshning vayitzer is kid Rabbi Yirmiya ben Elazar. Dama Rabbi Yirmiya ben Elazar du partzufim barakosh rishon. Man was created two-faced. Shenamar, because the Pesach says, achor vakedem tsaritani, that you beset me both back and forth. The Gemara over here darshans from that tsaritani to mean tsura, that you created me, my image, achor vakedem, front and back. So there's an image both in the front and the back, and that means that he had two parts of him, do meaning two, parts of him meaning face, he has two faces to him, and the Gemara will follow up with this to indicate that that is probably akin to what a position later on, that zachar nukeva baram, that man was created both as a male and female joined together in the beginning, and was only later on split up into a separate male and female. Now the Gemara continues to darshan these psukim in the Briah, 
that after a Baruch removes the tzela from Adam, he builds it into the woman. Rav Shmuel, v'machloket Rav Shmuel, chadamar patsuf. One of them says the tzela means the face. V'chadamar zanav, it means the tail. Now the word tzela can mean different things. A tzela can mean a rib. A tzela can mean something in excess. And the word tzela can mean, like we see by the Mishkan, it means a side. So it's clear that one of them that says it's patsuf, is learning the word Sela to mean the side. That he took one side, like we just said before, that man was created in a dual form, male and female, facing in different directions. And therefore, when it says here he took the Sela, he took one side, it means he took the face or he took the entire female part of man's body. The other possibility is that Sela means either a rib, because the ribs are found on the sides or on the flank, or it could mean Sela could mean an extra and excess part, and that's what's being said over here, zanav. So whether zanav is literally a tail, or zanav means just something that is to the side, like a rib, it's not clear over here. Bishlam al-damandamar partsuf, according to one who says that the way that a Kosh Baruch Hu did this, built the female, was to take the side or the, the female face. So now we connect that back to what we said before, that Adam Arishon was really made, Zacharu Nekeva, and there was a male and female aspect to him. Alamandamar Zanav, according to one who says that we're speaking about a tail, if that's all he took up from Adam, that means the female form was not there yet and he had to create it, then how do we explain that posuk that's found in Tehillim Kuflamitet? Kedurabiyami. Damarabiyami. Achor lemaseh breshit. He was the last part of creation. We call them lipuranut. But yet he was the first one to be punished. And that's because the word Tsaratani, the Marsha says, can be interpreted in two ways. Tsaratani can be Lashon of Yitzira or Tsura creation. And it also can be a Lashon of Tsara, which is pain or difficulty. And therefore one side of it is the Yitzira, that man was last in creation. And the other side is the Tsara, the difficulties or the punishment that comes to man so that he was Kedem in the Tsara and Achor in the Yitzira. Bishlama Achor He was the last of the creation, the Lo Ivre Ad Shabto. Because he wasn't created until Erev Shabbat. Man is created on the sixth day. After everything else in creation is already made, man is the pinnacle of creation. And that happens at the last part of creation. Where is it that he comes first when it comes to punishment? What punishment are we speaking about over here? We're talking about the, the sin in Ganadin of eating from the eights. And in that case, he was man got punished first. That's not true. If you look in the Psukim, it's not true. But we have a bright uh, that even reinforces that. Vatanya, Rabbi Omer, Bigdula, Matchilim in Agadol. When it's coming to deal with honor or glory, we start from those that are the highest stature or the greatest. Ubiklala, when it comes to negative or cursing, Matchilim in Akatan, we start from the one who is the lowest. Bigdula, Matchilim in Agadol. When it comes to bestowing honor or uplifting individuals, we start from the one who is greatest. Dichtiv, it says, Vaydver Moshe El Haron, Vele Lazar El Itamar, Banav so the parshia that's found after the death of Nadav Abihu, when Moshe addresses Aaron and his sons, he first speaks to Aaron, then to Lazar, then Itamar. So the order he turns to Aaron first, then only afterwards to Lazar U Itamar. When it comes to cursing, then we start from the one who's lowest on the pole, because Tchila Nitzkadel Nachash, the snake was cursed first, Ubasov Chava, and after him, God takes Chava to task and curses her, Ubasov Adam, and then lastly, he goes to Adam, and he punishes Adam. So you see, that can't be where you say that Adam is the first one to be punished, because there he was the last one to be punished. Ela Puranut de Mabul. 
speaking about the punishment of the Mabul Dikhtiv, because it says there, when it comes to the flood destroying everything that was there, it says, et kol It wipes out all that was there, all that was established, asher adama, anything that's on the face of the earth, me'adam ve'ad behemat, from man until animal, reisha adam, first man, ve'adar behemat, and then afterwards animal. So there you see this idea that he was first in punishment, he was the last in creation and first in punishment. And then that will be the drasha of achor vakedem tzartani, not the fact that Adam Rishon was made with both the male and female side. Bishlom adam adamar patsuf, according to one who says that God took a partsuf from Adam Rishon, Ainu dechtev vayitzer bishnei yudin. Then it makes sense that vayitzer is with two yudin, because that reinforces this idea that man was created in two creations. And that's what we saw from Rabbi Irmiya ben Elazar before, that vayitzer teaches you that he was two-faced, because there were two parts to Adam Rishon. And that's why you have two yuds in vayitzer. According to one who says it was just the tail that was detached from Adam, my Vayitzer. How does he explain Vayitzer? That's fine. We have another drasha. Okay, the Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi, as we saw before, Adam, Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi, Oyili miyotsri, Oyili miyitsri. So we saw already there were other possibilities of drashot over there. Bishlam al-Damandamar partsuf. According to one who says that Hashem took a partsuf, Ainu dikhtiv, that makes sense of the pasuk that says in Breshit, Zer sefer todot Adam, biyom bro alukim Adam, bidmut alukim asoto. Zachar unikeva biraam. So what does it mean, Zachar unikeva biraam? Makes it sound like they were created together. And then if you say that they, partsuf was what was taken away, then it makes sense because they were created together at first. Mandamar zanab, the one who says that it was just a little piece taken off of Adam Arishon, my Zachar unikeva biraam. Then what do you do with that pasuk that says male and female, they were created? Kedurabi abau. The Rabbi Bau Rami. Rabbi Abau brought a stira. Tiv Zacharu Nekeva Bira'am. Brings the pasuk that we just quoted that male and female they were created. Uchtev. And later on in Parshat Noach, with regards to the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, after Gosh Baruch makes the Brita Keshet with Noach, says that you're not allowed to kill another human being. Kibitzel Melukim Asat Adam. That Adam was created alone in the image of God. And you can see here in the Masoda Shas, he points you to the Gemara and Erevin, where Rabbi Abal brings actually a different Pasuk over there, which is, B'tselu Melukim bara oto. And so that's the question, is from that Pasuk, rather than the Pasuk they're bringing here from Parshat Noach. And there's more discussion of this, and which Pasukim are brought in the Gemara, in Ketubot and Davchet, with regards to the Nusach of the Sheva Brachot, and there Rashi and Tosafot comment about what is the view of the Amoraim, and then how is that influential, possibly, on which Pasukim that they bring in these situations. But then Rabbi Abau has this stira, Ha-Ketzad, how do we resolve this stira? In the beginning, of course, Baruch Hu had a machshava to create two creations, and in the end he only created one, meaning that he had in mind to make a zachar and a keva, in the end he only made a zachar, now, obviously, a Kosh Baruch Hu doesn't change his mind, but what that means is that Hashem took into consideration all the different aspects, and he realized that creating man and woman together, or at first, was not the right way to do it, but rather the best situation was to create man, and then only afterwards to have the woman be created from man, which, as many point out, is the reason that when a man and woman get together and get married, that it's really a unification of what once was a single unit and not trying to bring together two disparate objects. And that makes marriage a much more natural institution rather than a forced institution. The one who said that it was really du partsufim and then they split off to make the nekeva, then I understand why we score basar tachtena, that they had to fill in the missing part that was there 
because you took away a piece of Adam Arishon, and now you have to fill in the Basar in its place. If you take away the tail, which is an excess part anyway, it sticks out of the back, and there's nothing to fill in, then why do you need to fill in that which is missing? You need it for the place where it was severed to cure or seal up the place where the tail was cut away from. So then we would understand by score basar tachtena, not as replacing the flesh or the area that was taken away, but rather as being sealing up the area that was cut. According to one who said it was either the tail or the rib, that Hashem had to build the nekeva because he just had one small part. And from that small part, he had to develop the entire female. According to one who says that the female was already created, then what does it mean that he built her? She was already built. Why does he have to do something now to create or build the woman? Like Rabbi Shimon says, the Doresh Rabbi Shimon what is meant by the Pasuk Vayiven Hashem et Tzela, that Hashem built the Tzela, Lameid Shekala Kosh Baruchu Lechava Ve'evi'a Al-Adam HaRishon. It teaches you that a Kosh Baruchu braided the hair of Chava, and then brought her to Adam HaRishon to present her. She came out on the islands of the sea, Korim Lekliata Bniyata. They call braiding building, and so therefore Vayiven can refer to that. That also has ramifications with regards to Hilchot Shabbat, that one is not allowed to braid hair on Shabbat, because it is considered to be binyan or boneh on Shabbat. And that's the way Rashi explains it in Eruvin, although the Yorot Vash says that the word of Kliah means that he brought her in a covered and sanua manner, not to be a reference to braiding the hair, but rather Kliah from the Lashon that we found by the Mishkan in the Parshiot Shavua of Kaleah Chatzer, which means that he clothed her, he decorated her, and then brought her or presented her before Adam Arishon, Davaracher, another possibility is Vayivain, Amar Ravchista, Vamrila Bematznita, some attributed to Ravchista, some say that it's a Braita, Tana Melamed Shibana Koshbrochu the Chava Kibinyan Otsar, that a Koshbrochu made the woman or Chava like a silo or a storehouse. Maotsar Ze Katsar Milamala Birachav Milamato, just like any storage area is made with a wider base and a narrower top, Kadeh like a Belata Peirot, in order to be able to take the weight of the increased height or piling up of that which is stored there, because if it was, as Rashi says, reversed, it was narrow at the bottom and wide at the top, then all the pressure and the weight of that which was stacked up would then be laying on the walls and cause a problem. Therefore, when you build storage areas, you always build the bottoms wider than the top. Afayisha, so too a woman is built in a similar fashion. Katsrami milamalo. She is narrower up top, and she has hips down below, in order to facilitate her ability to carry the baby. So in that case, the word vayiven can be understood not like we thought before that vayiven means to build up the woman, but rather vayiven can either mean that he decorated, braided, or did something that made the woman more presentable and attractive to man, or vayiven can mean the shape of a woman, which is that the body design of a man and a woman are different, and that's what it means by Yvain. Not that he had to build the female from scratch, because either the face existed and he had to build out the body of the woman, or if the whole woman existed in part, he still had to build it out because he created a different figure for the woman than he did for the man. And then Hashem presents Chava, the woman, to man. From here you learn that Kosh was the quote-unquote, best man for Adam HaRishon. And from here you learn proper etiquette in these matters. 
that it's not a problem for someone of greater stature to be the best man to take care of someone who is a lower stature or someone that is not of the same ilk as this individual and take care of him and be his best man. And he shouldn't feel bad about it or he shouldn't feel it's beneath his dignity because even a Kodesh Baruch Hu did this for Adam Arishon. There is a piece that's brought in one of the Mesorah journals where Rosalvechik discusses what he thinks it means to be a Shushpin to Adam Arishon. And he claims over there that Shushpin or the Shushbinim involved giving brocha. And therefore you learn from that that a Kodesh Baruch Hu gave a brocha to Adam Arishon. And then he parlays that, parlays that into a halachic ramification, which is that the real mitzvah of being Mesameach Chatan Bikala is the Birkot Sheva Brachot. And therefore, if one is to do that properly at a wedding or in a, in a wedding or a situation where they want to be Mesameach Chatan Bikala, you have to be there for the Sheva Brachot because that's the ikar being, of being Mesameach the Chatan Bikala. It's built out of this idea that a Kosh Brachot was the Shushpin of Adam Arishon. According to the one who says that man was created with two faces or two sides, a male and female side, which one went first? That is because of what the man and the woman represent over here, which the Grog claims the man represents the Shifa to the spirituality and Olam Abba, and the woman represents the physicality and the Olam Azeh. question of the Gemara is, which one goes first? Meaning that Olam Abba, which is the long-term goal, is that what should be going forward? Or the place that we're found right now, which is Olam maybe that's where the woman should go forward. The way that the Maral expresses always when the difference between an Ish and Isha, that an Ish is the Tzura, then the woman is the Chomer, and the man gives Tzura to the Chomer of the woman. And therefore the question is, does the Chomer go first? Because without Chomer, then the Tzura is not bringing any form to anything. Or does the Tzura go first because that's what defines where the Chomer should go? Similar concept to what the Gra is explaining. Summer of Nachum Bayitzvach Mistavra the Gavra Sagibiration. Makes sense that the man was first or the front, meaning that they went in the direction of the man's side and not on the female side. Titania, because we have a Braita, Loyalech Adam person should not walk behind a woman when he's traveling, even if it is his wife. Now Rashi explains over here that the the problem of walking behind his wife is different than the problem of walking behind another woman. Behind another woman, you have a problem of hirhurim, problem of histaklot, or maybe in a problem of niuf. We'll see that developed in the Gemara. But by Ishto, Rashi says it's just a ganai. It's inappropriate. It's not something befitting an individual to walk behind his wife. That can be explained for one of two reasons, one of which is the possibility that even by his wife, there is an issue of too much focus on the physicality and the appearance of his wife. The other possibility is that it is not appropriate for his wife to be going in front of him. That could be, again, for two different reasons. One possibility is just from a matter of protection, that the man should go in front of the woman and should be protecting her, and he should be clearing the way so that she can come after him. The other possibility is that the difference between man and woman, and so based on what we said before, it might relate to this idea of if the woman goes first, then Olam Hazeh and the Chomer is leading Whereas it should be the opposite way around, that the man should be leading, which is that the long-term view to Olam Abba and the Surah should be taking the lead here. And if it's his wife in front of him, then there's something wrong with the priorities of the individuals or the couple that's found here. So Nizdam Lo Alagesher, if he's in a situation where you're in a very narrow spot, where you're going to be trapped in a situation because it's a narrow bridge and you're going to have to go behind the woman, then he should try to move it to the side. The way Rashi explains that is, 
he should try to get around her, he should try to circumvent her, should try to do something so that he doesn't get stuck behind her. And Rashi over here explains that a problem of the bridge is only by Ishadish, because over there you're dealing with an issue where you're going to have to make extra effort to get around. It's not simply a question of who goes first. In that instance, they only obligated you to do that when it's an Ishadish, where there's a real Isur, but by Ishto they didn't force you or compel you to deal with it because it's only an issue of Ginai. Now we have a third statement, which is anybody who goes after a woman in the river, that person has no olamaba. Rashi over here says the problem in the river is it's only a married woman. She picks up her clothing so they don't get soaked in the river. And if you're behind her, then you're going to be looking at this married woman that's in front of you. And at Tosafot notes over here, this person does this on a regular basis. Because the fishia voli de niuf, because that will lead to adultery. So for your the gain, no. So Tosua doesn't see that the problem being something that's inherent, but rather that the problem is something that precipitates problematic behavior, which is niuf. And therefore, you shouldn't be going behind the woman because of the niuf. And that's why the lashon over here is ain lo chelik because it's going to lead to a violation of one of the aseretadi brot. Although there are others that believe that the problem here is simply a problem of histaklut, because the exposure of the covered parts of the woman are the issue at hand, and Rashi seems to indicate something along those lines. The reason maybe why there's a focus on Eshet Ish is because ain lo chelik is a serious issue, and that's why Rashi claims it's being about Eshet Ish, and not just speaking about any woman in general, which would be problematic as well. So in Tanra Banan, now we have a continuation along the lines of this sugya, someone who's counting out money or passing money from his hand to her hand in a situation where he's not doing it for business reasons or for payment reasons, but rather because he wants to look at her and get enough from her. Even if he's at the level of Moshe Rabbeinu, he will not be freed of the punishment of Gineinom. Because the Pesach says in Mishlei, where it's speaking about the individuals that Hashem prefers and dislikes, for instance, the post before says, Tovat Hashem Ikshelev. Hashem despises those that are of a perverse or crooked heart. Uritzonot Mimederach. But Hashem likes those that are upright or straight in their ways. And the next post says, Yad la Yad lo Those that come together, hold hands, clasp hands to do Ra lo They will not be cleansed. But the offspring of the tzaddikim will escape. But you see there, yad the yad, and the Gemara plays on yad the yad, the passing of money from hand to hand. Ra, if the intent is for something bad, lo yinakeh, he will not be cleansed of that, he will not be freed of that punishment. Well, the Rashi plays on the yad the yad as a reference to the other part of this statement here, which is that even someone who has in his hand Torah masim tovim, like Moshe Rabbeinu, who got the Torah, miyad minoshal akarsh baruchu yad the yad, Lo he will not be cleansed over here. And the truth is, it could be referencing to both aspects of it, and that's why the formulation of the statement includes both the problem of handing money from a man's hand to a woman's hand, as well as the statement that even if they're as great as Moshe Rabbeinu, they're still not going to be relieved of the punishment of Geino. And that's what it means, that he would not be freed from the punishment of Geino. Manoach, who is the father of Shimshon, Amar Gemara says about Manoach that he's someone who didn't have understanding, was not well versed in that which is written here by the Talmidei Chachamim, because the Pasuk says in Shoftim, after the Malach appears to Manoach's wife again, because they had Davin that he should come back and give the instructions again, and she sees him alone in the field, and runs back to her husband to tell her husband to come with her to meet the man. 
who they don't know is a malach till after he goes up in a fire to the heavens later on. There it says, The Manoach followed after his wife. That goes against what we just said here in the Gemara, that even be Ishto, he should not be going behind his wife. Now the Gemara challenges whether that's really the meaning of the statement over here, because, If that's the case, by Elkanah, in the beginning of Shmuel Aleph, who is the father of Shmuel, it says, That Elkanah went after his wife. problem with that is, as you can see here, there's no Torah or on it. And the Baitos would say, Shibushu. This is a total mistake. There's no such pasuk that's found in the entire Tanakh that says anything of the sort. But there are those that try to replace the pasuk with a different pasuk. The Marshal brings from someone that a pasuk that's found by Pilegish Begifa, where it says and says maybe that's the source, but that's problematic because Pilegish Begifa, at least according to those that believe that it's really properly situated at the end of Sefer Shoftim, then that's nowhere near the time period of Elkanah. And even if it's at the beginning of Shoftim, it depends how early in the time of the Shoftim that you believe that it happened, that whether Elkanah could even be alive, for that be a pasuk that's quoted about him. Although the Marsha quotes from the Alkut Shimoni that brings a pasuk about Elkanah, in Shmuel Al-Ferg Bet, Pasuk Yud Aleph, where it says, after Tilat Chana, after they had left Shmuel in Shiloh, that it says there, Vayelech Elkanah Ramato Al-Beitov, and Arya Mishret Tadashem, et Pnei Yedli Yakoen. Elkanah went back to the Ramah, to his house. So there they interpret Al-Beito, Beito Zoishto, and Al is interpreted not to mean on or to, but rather Al-Besamuch, close to. So that means that Elkanah went to the Ramah next to, by his wife, meaning that his wife was in front of him, and that the Marsha says possibly could be the proper post that should have been quoted over here. And also, Vagabi Elisha, it says, Vayakam Vayelech Achareha, that Elisha follows the Shashunamit after she comes to get him because the son that he had told her that she was going to have had passed away, and now it says he follows after the Shashunamit. Hakanami Achareha Mamash. So in these two cases, Elkanah and Elisha, you're not going to claim that they are Amearet. So you're going to say here too, they went after the woman. Here, even by Elisha, it's not even his wife. How could it be that they literally walked behind these women? Ella, Acharei Divareha, Vacharei Atzata. They weren't literally physically walking behind, but rather they went after that which was instructed to them, that which was advised to them. So just like you would explain those pasukim that way, so too you would explain the pasuk by Manoach in a similar fashion. It doesn't mean he literally walked after his wife. It's a possibility that he was just following his wife because she's the one who told him that the Malach is here. So it's not a literal, but rather a figurative idea that he's following after his wife. According to Rav Nachman, who believes Menoach Amaretz Afilu Beirav Nami Forget about the fact that he was an Amaretz and he wasn't Mishamish Tamidei Chachamim. He didn't even go to Cheder. He didn't even know the basic pasuk Shenemar. The pasuk says with Rivka Imenu, Batakam Rivka Venarotah. After Eliezer comes to Haran to pick up a wife for Yitzchak, and Rivka agrees to go with Eliezer, it says that Rivka Venarotah. And then they rode on the camels. They went after Eliezer, or after the man, not before him, because of this idea that it's inappropriate for the man to go behind the woman. And so even from the psukim, you could be medayek, this information, and Manoach didn't even have that basic knowledge. Now Rabbi Yochanan creates a hierarchy in terms of, if you have choices as to what you are going to walk behind, better to walk behind a lion than to walk behind a woman. The Marsha explains over here that this is learned from David Melech, who kills a lion, but is felled by a woman. Better to go after a woman 
rather than to go after a Avodah because Avodah is being kofer bakol, and therefore, achorei aisha versus achorei avodah and achorei avodah zarah, velo achorei beta knesset, b'shash atzibor mitpalim. And better again to follow avodah than it is to walk behind the shul, past the door of the shul, while the tzibor is mitpalim, and you don't go in. Because that's an indication that you don't believe in God, or that you're rejecting that which the tzibor is doing. And the marsha indicates that by avodah zarah is a possibility that you worship the avodah zarah b'shituf, which means that you think that there is God and the avodah zarah, or these are medians to get to a kaddish baruch Hu. and that way you still have some semblance of connection to a kaddish baruch Hu, versus the case where you walk behind the beit knesset and you've totally detached yourself from a kaddish baruch Hu and denied the existence of a kaddish baruch Hu. And now the gemara of lo achrei beit knesset b'shashet zibur mitpalim brings us full circle back to the beginning of the mesecht on davchet. And here the Gemara qualifies the problem of walking behind the Beit Knesset. That's only if he's not carrying a load. And if he is carrying a load, it's not a problem. Because the reason he's going by there is not because he's rejecting the Tzibor, but because he's loaded up. And he can't stop here because he has to get the load to wherever he's going. Or he can't reload himself afterwards, and so he needs to move on. So there's some other variable that causes him to pass by the Beit HaKnesset that people can assume is the reason that he didn't enter to Davin. It's only true if there's not another door to go in, because there's another door, that when he passes this door, people can just assume that he's going around to the other door, and it doesn't look like he's rejecting a Kodesh Baruch That's only if he's not riding a donkey, because there he can easily stop into the shul and enter, and instead he doesn't. But when he's riding his donkey, what is he going to do with his donkey in the interim? Or it looks like that he's going on a long journey, and therefore it's clear why he's not going in is because he needs to continue on the journey. And therefore, if you're riding on a donkey, there's no problem. It's only true if you're not wearing tefillin. If you're wearing tefillin, there's no problem, because putting wearing the tefillin is an indication that you believe in a Kodesh Baruch and that you are not walking by here because you deny or reject that which the tzibur is doing, you must have something else going on, but the chashash is removed because of the fact that you are wearing tefillin. And now the Gemara continues to discuss the issue of the Yitzhahara. And Amar Rav, Yitzhahara, Domed Zvov, Yoshev Ben Shnei Mifatchei Halev. That the Yitzhahara is just like a fly, and it sits between the two openings of the heart. Shinemar. So now they quote the first pasuk in Paragut of Kohelet, Zvove Mavet, a dead fly, Yavish Yabia Shemen Rokeach. He will make putrid and cause to be bad Shemen Rokeach, a perfumed oil. And as Rashi notes over here, the word Yabia means to bubble up. And that's because anything that goes bad ferments and bubbles up. And so here, a dead fly causes all this rot in something that is wonderful. Just like small fly can cause tremendous amount of damage, so too the Yitzhahara which is like a small fly, can cause a lot of problems for an individual. The Chavitz Chaim notes that the reason it's domed to a fly is because anybody who's experienced a fly that's bothering an individual, it keeps swatting away the fly, and the fly keeps coming back at you. Similarly, the Yitzhah no matter how much you push it away, how much you swat it away, it keeps coming back at you. And the Nefesh HaChaim in Shar Gimel says that the Yitzhah is not found on any side, but rather in the middle, because sometimes the Yitzhah appears as a good party, and sometimes it appears as a bad party. Sometimes in order to get a person to do something wrong, the Yitzhah has to convince them to do a bigger mitzvah, or do something they think is good. So for instance, what the Nefesh HaChaim is speaking about, that sometimes a person will be mahad there in preparations for tefillah, getting ready for tefillah, and then end up missing zman tefillah. 
So over there, the Yetzirah was acting in a way that looked like a Yetzirah Tov, dressed up like the Yetzirah Tov, in order to convince the person that their preparations were important for their davening. Or, sometimes, the Yetzirah can push a person to learn more, stay up later and do more. The reason that that is successful is because it's going to come in the expense of their going to minion the next morning, or being functional the next morning. And so the Yetzirah, again, dresses up as if he's doing something good, and that's why it's described here that the Yitzharah sits in the middle, that I heard from my Rebbe of Goldberg, and the Chavetz Chaim commenting on that says that that's why we say in Hashkivenu, Vaser Satan Milifanenu, Umeacharenu, they have to take away the Satan from in front of us and from behind us, that sometimes the Satan's in front of us, so take him away because we see him as the Satan, we need him to be removed, but sometimes the Satan's behind us, pushing us to do more and pushing us to be better because he knows that if we do that, we're either going to be, become haughty or we're going to do too much of something and it's going to cause us a bigger loss than something else, and so therefore we ask Hashem to remove the Yitzharah, both Milifanenu Umeacharenu, as well as over here that Rob describes it as sitting in the middle versus the Yitzharah Tov, which we'll see in a second, that sits on a particular side. It's similar to a kernel of wheat. So once again, Shmuel, like Rob, says that it's something that's very small. Yet, something that's small that can do a lot of damage or can make a big impact, and that's because a small kernel of wheat can then be fermented into a machmitz, into a sourdough that will cause other things to expand and become bigger. So too, this small Yitzharah can create big problems for the individual. Shinamar, because the Pasuk says, the petach chatat rovets. So Rashi says that the proof from the Pesach is the word chatat is also a play on the word chita. And so therefore it's the petach chatat rovets, like a kernel of wheat, it sits or crouches there to ensnare you or to trap you. As the Grah says that it's associated with the Eitzdat Tovirah, because one of the opinions that we saw in the Gemara is that it was chita. And so therefore it's referring to the Eitzadat, that is the source of all problems or evil, and that's why Chita was chosen by Shmuel to represent the Yetzirah. And the Maral explains that the Machogah here between Rav and Shmuel is what is the methodology of the Yetzirah. Is the Yetzirah a zvulv, which is a disgusting little thing? That's because the Yetzirah that's chasing after Ra attracts things that are similar to it. And so the Yetzirah is a lowly creation that draws or is drawn towards other lowly things. Or is it the other way around? Opposites attract, and the Chita which is this beautiful kernel of wheat that represents so much potential, that attracts the attention of things that are bad or ugly or decadent. And therefore, the Yetzer is really something that is pure and beautiful, and therefore it's what attracts, it causes the problem of the Yetzer And again, that might go back to what we said before, if there's really no Yetzer in Tov, but rather just Yetzer, which is the driver, the inclinations of the individual, then they're maybe arguing about what is the natural tendency or leanings of that Yetzer, where Rob says it's like a zvulv, the base instincts and the base drives are the things that are more powerful, whereas Shmuel says it's like a chita, and therefore the more controlled and uplifting side of the inclinations of the drives of the individual are what are more pronounced. Or they could be arguing about what causes a person to sin. Is a person sin because they're so low down, they're depressed, and they are down and out? Or do people sin when things are going great and when they are flying high? That's what causes them to sin, and that might also be a difference in their view as what does the Yetzirah, quote-unquote, look like. Or it could be the methodology by which the Yetzirah and Yetzirah Tov work. Fly works by being a pest and pestering the person day after day, whereas the Chita works in a slow and gradual manner by which it slowly expands and then creates a problem by taking something small and expanding to something big. 
Now we bring a bright Tanur Banan. Person has two kidneys. One of them gives good advice, positive advice to go to the good side. One of them gives him bad advice or advice to do that which is wrong. And it makes sense to say that the good advisor is on the right side. And the bad one on the left side. The right is usually identified with that which is wise and good. And the left is identified with that which is foolish and bad. And my father always notes that is also true of the words that are used in Latin for right, which is dexter, and left, which is sinistar. So that which is on the right is something that is like the word dexterous, and those which are on the left are things like are sinistar or bad. So now that we brought that right up, we're bringing a bright that speaks about different organs in the body and how they affect the activity or the thought process of man. It's hard to think that these are taken literally, and therefore it makes more sense to see this in a figurative sense that's explained in a more Kabbalistic sense, which is that just like there are these internal organs of the physical side, there are also these parallel organs in the nefesh adam, and therefore they are the representative organs that do what the Gemara suggests over here. And that is, the kidneys give advice, the heart is, is the organ that has the understanding, the tongue is what expresses that which they say, and the mouth finishes off that expression or articulation, the esophagus is the place that allows food to go in or to be disgorged, trachea, is what allows the sound to reverberate or come from inside. Rea shoevet komine mashkim. The lungs are absorptive and pull or draw in all liquids. Rashi over here says, even though liquids only enter the stomach through the esophagus and not through the trachea, nevertheless, the sucking ability comes from the lungs. And therefore, it's considered as if the lungs are the ones that pull the liquid into the individual. Kaved koes, the liver is what causes anger. Mara, the gallbladder, zureket botipa, ominyachato, throws a little drop in it, and that assuages the anger. Tchol, the spleen, the way that Rashi has it over here is sochek, from the word tchok, or laughter, causes laughter. Others say that tchol means shochek to grind up, and that it helps in the digestive process. Kurkaban, the gizzard, which is the equivalent, as Rashi says over here, to the hamasas, or hemseis, in the animal, which is one of the stomachs of the animal. Tochein, that does the grinding or the digestion. Keba, yeshena, the stomach causes one to fall asleep, and that's when a person eats a big meal, it causes them to fall asleep. Af, the nose, or breathing, neor, causes the person to awaken. Neor, hayashen, if that which is sleeping awakens. Or yashen, haneor, or that which is awake or causes awakeness falls asleep. Nimok volechlo, then the person will deteriorate. Tana, and we have a bright time, shnehem yashenim, or shnehem neurim, if both of them are sleeping, or both of them are awake, miad mate, that is an imbalance that a person cannot survive, and therefore they will die immediately. Now we continue with the bright Tatanya of Yosef Galili Omer, Tzadikim Yitzhar Tov Shuktan, that the Tzadikim, the Yitzhar Tov, judges them, Shinemar, because it says, by David Melech, after when he's speaking about all these wicked people that are chasing him, and that he's really a nobody, he says, Vilibi Chalal Bikirbi, that my heart is an empty space or dead inside of me. Rashi says over here that David's trying to say that it's as if the Yitzhar is dead inside of him. And therefore, there's only the Yetzirah Tov that's left. Rishayim, Yetzirah Shuftan. 
will judge them. Because the Pesach says, Neum Pesha the Rasha Bekerev Libi Ein Pachad Elukim L'Neged Enav The evil person or the, the wicked person speaks of doing iniquity inside of their heart because Ein Pachad Elukim L'Neged Enav because they have no fear of God opposite them. And that is because the Rishayim don't have any offsetting Yetzeratov and therefore there's no Pachad Elukim L'Neged Enav Benonim, those that are in the middle Zebezeshoftan then they're judged by both the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah Tov. Shnemar, from the same Perak Tilim that quoted before, says, Yamod, Hashem will provide protection for those that need it. Yamod, do you mean Evyon? Loshia mishoftei nafshot. That he will stand to the right of those that are impoverished to bring salvation from those that are oppressing him. And Rashi says that the drushes from the word shoftei nafshot, which is the judgers of his nefesh, which means that there's more than one judge here. That's both the Yetzer Atov and the Yetzer Hara. And that's for the Benonim. So we explain the word Shuftan as the simple meaning of Shuftan. It judges them, but Rashi seems to be saying that Shuftan means that it drives them. Meaning that the Tzadikim are driven by their Yetzer Atov. The Rishayim are driven Shuftan being led by their Yetzer Hara. And that's what it means, that there's no fear of God there. And the Benonim are pulled or driven by both the Yetzer Atov and the Yetzer Hara. And therefore, the more you exercise one of those two Yitzarim, the stronger it gets, and the more adept it will be in taking you down the path that you've chosen to continue to exercise. And so the tzaddikim that exercise their side of spirituality, their Yitzaratov, they will continue to act or follow in that manner, and vice versa for the Rishayim, and the Benonim are still stuck or vacillating between that which is good and that which is bad. Although the Marsha learns over here, not like Rashi, but simply that Shultan means to judge them, because you don't need a proof that someone who's doing good is following his Yetzer Atov, and that the Tzaddikim will be held accountable by their Yetzer Atov, because they could have done more, or could have been even better, and therefore the Yetzer Atov is judging them, and the Yetzer judges the Rishayim, because they allow the Yetzer to overcome them and overtake them, and therefore the Yetzer brings them their due, which is their death in the end. Amarava Konanu Benonim. Rava says about himself, or the Girsa could be Rabba, and might make more sense here, because Abaye is going to say Mar, which he only says to Rabba, his Rebbe, and not to his Chaver Rava. That we are middle-of-the-road people. You didn't leave any room for anyone else. If you're considered a Benoni, meantime, you're the Gadolador, then what hope does anyone else have if you're considered to be a Benoni? Amarava, so Rava, similarly responding to Abai about this, says, Amarava, lo ivre alma el gemure. The world is only created for either Rishayim gemurim, or the gemure, or to full-fledged tzadikim. The way Rashi explains it is, Olam Azeh was created for Rishayim gemurim, so they get all their reward in this world. And Olam Ba was made for the tzadikim, so they get all their reward in the Olam Hayamet. But Amarava, le da'inish binafshay im tzadik gemur or in lav. And then a person needs to know about themselves, whether they're a tzadik gemur or not. Which is that every person has to judge for themselves. And so I feel about myself, whether it's out of humility or not, that I'm a Benoni. And that's his response to Abaye, which is every person's got to judge themselves and know where they are. It's, it's not a relative judgment or situation. It's an individual situation. That's how I feel about myself. Or the way the Groh explains is a person needs to know where his standing is so he knows how to battle the Yetzirah. Because if a person is a true tzaddik, then his Yetzirah doesn't really exist. And if there's something or advice that's coming that feels like the Yetzirah, he can know that he's going to lead him down the right path because he has a tzaddik gamor. Whereas somebody who is not a tzaddik has to be choshesh for that bad advice of the Yetzirah. And that's what Rubba was saying. 
that you got to know where you stand. And I know that the Yitzharah doesn't always give me the proper advice. It doesn't always harness for that which is good. And therefore, I need to be weary of the Yitzharah. And Mechtav Eliel explains beautifully that when it comes to tzaddikim, even when they do mundane things, they have an elevated status because they eat in order to do more mitzvot. They eat in order to follow in the ways of Hashem. And so even their mundane activities are elevated to the level of the Yetzir Atov, whereas it's the opposite way around for the Rishayim. Even the good acts that they do or the good things that they do, it's because their Yetzir Ara is driving them either for more kavod or to get into fights or for honor. And that's what it means that the Ulam Azeh is for the Rishayim and the Ulam Abba is for the tzaddikim. Amarav lo ivri alma, even though Rav is a number of generations before Rava, it seems to be the Gemara is correlating the two items together, and Rav says, Amarav lo ivri alma el Achav ben Omri, that the world was created for Achav, the terrible king of Israel, or the Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, which is Achav ben Omri olam For Achav, this world, he was very wealthy, as Rashi points out, despite all of his wickedness and terrible things that he did. And since he was such a great Russia, he was enjoying all the benefits of this world. Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa is olam like the Gemara Tanit tells us that he barely had anything to eat from week to week and he was satisfied with that, yet he was supporting the whole world and he was a tremendous tzaddik. And so that goes back to what Roba said before, that the world is created either for Rishayim Gimurim, which is Olam Hazem, and it's created for Tzadikim Gimurim, which is a reference to Olam Aban. These are examples of that. Now the Gemara continues based on the drush that we saw in the Mishnah, Hashem that you need to love Hashem. Tanya Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Im Nermar Bechol Nafshecha, if it says that you have to love Hashem with all of your life, Lama Nermar Bechol Meldecha, then why does it have to tell you you have to love Him with all your wealth, with all your possessions? Vim Nermar Bechol Meldecha, if it tells you you have to love Him with all your possessions, Lama Nermar Bechol Nafshecha, so then why does it say you have to love Him with your life? Ella comes to teach you, Im Yesh Lecha Adam Shegufo Chaviva Lav Mimono, if there a person who his life is more precious than his possessions, so then it says, Lekach Nermar Bechol Nafshecha, that you have to love Hashem with all of your soul, meaning that love for Hashem sits even above what you consider to be the highest thing in the world, which is your own life. Or if you have someone whose money or possessions are worth more to them than their life, then love of Hashem sits above even all your possessions. Then Rabbi Kiva comes along and says, that comes to teach you that even if it takes your life, that you have to love Hashem, that one has to give up their life for love of Hashem. And that means, number one, if it comes to a choice between a Zara and giving up one's life, they have to give up their life. Also, the Gemara Psachim brings that you're not in mitrapim be'avodah You cannot use avodah zarah for medicinal purposes. And that's what it means you have to give up your life and not use medicines that derive from avodah zarah. The question is, how does Rabbi Akiva relate to that which Rabbi Eliezer says over here? And the Groh favors saying that Rabbi Akiva's din is not connected to that of Rabbi Eliezer because Rabbi Eliezer speaks about and prioritizes money over life. What use is the person's money if they're not alive anymore? And therefore, the Groh thinks that Rabbi Eliezer is not speaking about life death situations, but rather, how much physical effort and monetary effort does one have to give up in order to accomplish the mitzvot Hashem? And that's what Rabbi Leiz is speaking about, not about Kiddush Hashem or Mestirat Nefesh. Rabbi Akiva comes along with the new drasha of a filon hotel at Nafshecha, whereas the Marsha thinks that Rabbi Akiva is coming to expand the definition of that which Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer seems to be speaking about how much effort you need to put into the mitzvot. Rabbi Akiva says, well, you know what effort means? Effort means even if it's don't tell Nafshecha, even if it takes your life, that's how far this goes. And the Ron and the Gemar B'Sachim that discusses about Yareg, Val Yavor, and Emit Rabim Babodizora, there explains the difference between Bechol Nafshecha and Bechol Meldecha. It should be obvious that a person has to give up all their money and their life for a Kodesh Baruch With regards to all your money, Ubechol Meldecha is a given. And since there's no mitigating 
offset to that, that's a given that Bechol Modecha means you have to give up all your money to prevent a violation of the Torah. Whereas by Bechol Namshucha, you would have thought the same thing, that one has to give up their life in order to keep the Torah. But there we have a mitigating factor, which is the Torah says, Bechai Bahem, that you should live by the mitzvot and not die by them. Given that, that would be the overarching principle. And then we would have thought you don't have to give up your life for mitzvot. That's what the Drosh of Bechol Namshucha comes to teach you. That in certain instances, we do require that you give up your life. And in the context where Bechol Nafshech is written, in in that context makes it that one has to give up their life. When it comes to the choice between Abodah Zarah and one's life, one has to give up their life. It's Yehareg Valyavor. Others suggest that what Riyakiva is suggesting over here will garner from the upcoming stories and will point out what he was either adding on top of Rabbi Eliezer or how he was possibly disagreeing with Rabbi Eliezer. Tanah Banan, and now the Gemara brings one of the most famous stories in Shas. That Pamachat Gazra Machuta Rashash the Roman government during the Hadrianic persecutions put a degree that people may not learn Torah. But Papas Ben Yuda, Papas Ben Yuda was passing by a much older Rabbi Akiva Sheh Makil Kilot Birabim. He was gathering people in public, and he was teaching Torah publicly. Are you not afraid of the Roman government? They're going to kill you because you're abrogating the decree that they put in place. Papas ben Yehuda might have been a difference of opinion about how to deal with the Roman persecution during this period of time. We know that Rabbi Akiva was close to and supportive of the Bar Kokhva revolt, and there were Tanaim that were in support of rebelling against and fighting against the Romans. On the other hand, we know that there are other Tanaim that supported the Roman government and did not think that that was the right thing to do. And we find that their reactions are different. I mean, Rabbi Kiva here is publicly defying the decree of the Romans, whereas Papas Ben Yehuda is questioning as to whether that maybe is the right approach. And we find different cities within Eretz Yisrael that after the Bar Kokhov revolts, some of them survive and thrive, like Tzipori, areas where the people of Tzipori, the Tanaim of Tzipori, were supportive of the Roman government, and despite the decrees, worked against them in private, but not in public. Whereas people like Rabbi Akiva were openly rebellious or against the Roman government. And maybe that's part of the difference here between the view of Papas Ben Yehuda and Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva says, I'll give you a parable. What is this similar to? The Shu'al, like a fox. He was walking on the banks of the river. And he saw fish swimming around and running all over the place. Some of them, What are you running away from? What are you swimming away from? We're afraid of the nets of people that are coming to fish in the river. Why don't you come up onto the dry land with me and we'll live together like our forefathers lived together. So the fish said back to the fox, That you're the smartest of the animals, the slyest of the animals. You're not smart, you're a fool. In the water, which is our place of sustenance and where we can survive, then we're afraid. If we're brought up onto the dry land where we have no chance of survival, then certainly it's not going to work and we're going to be more afraid. It doesn't make sense to leave the water. And so too Rabbi Akiva was suggesting, If we're engaged in Torah study, where it's written, that it is your life, and it will give you long life. This is what's happened to us. Despite the fact that we're doing this, we're still being persecuted. 
if we then instead decide to follow the decree of the Romans and not learn Torah, the situation is going to get even worse and be a much worse situation. And so Rabbi Akiva promotes this open rebellion or rejection of the decrees of the Romans. And interestingly enough, Rabbi Akiva over here brings the mashal that includes the fox, which is also another one of the famous stories of Rabbi Akiva at the end of the Gemara Makot, where it discusses Rabbi Akiva and the Chachamim were walking by Hayarabayit and they saw a fox walking into the Kodesh HaKodoshim. And so the fox is the representation that Rabbi Akiva gives to evil in both of those Mishalim. But over here, Rabbi Akiva sees that the survival of the Jewish people is dependent on Torah study and public Torah study. And if we allow the Romans to subvert us, then we're not going to survive, even though it's going to cost us now very heavily. But that's a price that's worth paying because then we're still engaged in Torah. If we forfeit the engagement in Torah in order to survive physically, in the end there'll be nothing left of us because we'll be even in a worse situation. Amru, lo ayu yamim Kiva. Wasn't much time before the Romans got wind of this and they caught Rabbi Akiva violating the decree and they incarcerated him. And and similarly, Papas Ben Yehuda was also arrested on charges by the Romans. And he was put in the same prison as Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva says to Papas, what are you doing over here? Rabbi Akiva, who again we said before, was promoting open rebellion against the Romans, understood or knew, knew why he was in jail. But Puppis, who had suggested to Rabbi Kiva not to act that way, he's asking Puppis, what are you doing over here? It's good that you were charged with the violation of teaching Divrei Torah. And although the Puppis, Shinit Pasta Dvarim Betelim, versus Puppis Ben Yehuda, who was brought up on what seemingly are trumped up charges, but nothing to do with anything holy. The grove here claims that this pulpus is associated with the pulpus and Mulanios that are brought in the Gemara and Tanit, Yudchet Amudbet, where Rashi explains over there that they were two brothers, volunteered themselves to be killed because there was a charge brought against the Jews that they had killed the Caesar's daughter or the, the leader of the Judean protectorate of Rome was killed by the Jews, and they were going to kill all the Jews based on that claim. And these two volunteered and said that they killed her even though they didn't. And that's what Papa says that he's here on trumped-up charges, which never happened. Not because he wasn't doing something good, but just because he just admitted to a crime that he had never had done. But he still then is jealous of Rabbi Akiva, who's there because of violation that's to do with the spiritual survival of Bnei Israel. Now the Marshal over here asks, how was it possible that Rikiva was allowed to put his life in danger in order to teach Torah Rabim? It's not one of the three of Eirot that you're Hereg Valyavor. So he gives three answers. One answer is the fact that it was a Shmad, and we know in the Gemara in Parak Vensorer in Sanhedrin that Shmad, all mitzvot have a din of Yereg Valyavor. Or it could be that it was a Avera Befarhesya, which is also an opinion that's brought in that Gemara. When an Avera is in public, there's a din of Yereg Valyavor, even when it's not a Shmad. Although that's a somewhat difficult explanation because why did Rabbi Akiva have to put himself in such a position? Or he says, based on the Bali Tosafot, who argue on the Rambam and say that one is a allowed to voluntarily put themselves into a position and give up their life for Torah, even though they're not compelled to do such. That's why Rikiva put himself in a position where he was going to give up his life. And then the Brayta continues, Shasha Utsiu at Rabbi Akiva Lariga, the time that they were taking Rabbi Akiva out to execution. Zman Kriyachmaya was the time to read Kriyachma. They were combing his 
skin with iron combs. And he was being which was he was saying, His student said to him, this is what you need to do in terms of Kabbalah Tomachot Shemayim. Marlehem responds to them, call you my Chayiti Mitzter al-Pasuk my whole life. I was bothered by this Pasuk, b'chol nafshecha, feeling hotel at nishmatacha, that we darshan, b'chol nafshecha, like we saw before, that Rabbi Kiva believes that even if it takes your life, that you have to give it up for the love of Hashem. Marti, my tayyavot liyadi v'yakimenu. When is it going to come to me and I'll have the chance to do this in the proper way, this mitzvah? Now that it's come to my hand, I have the opportunity to do it, I'm not going to do it. He was finishing off lengthening the Achad like we saw earlier in the Masech the proper way to do this. Until his life went out with the word Echad. So this is influential on some of the opinions that we saw before as to what Rabbi Akiva added maybe to Rabbi Eliezer. One opinion is that it's expanding on Rabbi Eliezer and saying that what does it mean a feel no tell that mean that even if you are being persecuted, you shouldn't leave the mitzvah because of the pain that you're undergoing to not do the mitzvah of even in such a difficult situation. And that's what Rabbi Kiva was adding. And that's what his Talmidim are saying to him. They're seeing him being raked over by these combs and he's smiling and he's doing the mitzvah besimcha. And that's what they're asking him, Adkan, this is what you have to do. And that's what Rabbi Kiva responds to them. That, yeah, that's what I believe. That al-nafshecha means a feeling hotel nafshecha. Not just that you have to give up your life, but you have, you have to have a presence of mind to do the mitzvah b'simcha even in that circumstance. Or just because you're doing the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, which then should make you potter from another mitzvah, Rabbi Kiva's al-nafshecha teaches you that even in the face of Kiddush Hashem, there's still an obligation to do the mitzvah kriyat in that context, and that's what it means al-nafshecha. Or it could be that it's Talmidim we're asking him, don't we pass like Rabbi Eliezer? To which Rabbi Akiva responds that my is even beyond what Rabbi Eliezer believes. And I think you have to give up your life. And that's what he was doing in this instance. So those are what some of the achronim suggest that Rabbi Kiva was adding to the position of Rabbi Eliezer. And heavenly voice comes out at that time. Praiseworthy, lucky are you, Rabbi Akiva, where your life went out at the Echad, which is a, in a sense a siman that he was and passed away ascending to heaven. How could it be that this is Torah and this is the reward for Torah? This really seems to be lifted out of the Gemara, as the Masada Shas points out here, from the Gemara Minachot, where Moshe Rabbeinu is shown Rabbi Akiva in the future, and he sees the punishment of Rabbi Akiva and says to Akosh Baruch Hu, Zot Torah v'Zot And the Malachim say, Mimtim Yadcha Hashem. Death, Hashem, comes at your hands. Mimtim Echeled. And people can die a natural death. So then why is it that you're allowing Rabbi Akiva to die in such a difficult manner and make it seem like the others are causing the death here and not you, Akosh Baruch Hu? Samalahem. Because Baruch responds to them with the remainder of the Pasuk, which is Chalkam Bachayim. That his life is really the life in Olam Abba, and the life in this world is not something that is meaningful. And therefore, not to worry, you will get his deserving reward. And therefore, immediately afterwards, Yatabatko, another heavenly voice comes out and says, Amra Shrecha Rabbi Kivishata, Mizuman Olam Abba. That you are ready and prepared for Olam Abba, meaning that that's the real Chayim and that's the real reward, and there's no question of Zol Torah Bezoschara. Also, the idea that he was laughing or smiling at the time of the execution is brought in the story in the Yerushalmi. And the Baliatosafo have a misora that's quoted by a number of the Rishonim that someone who dies al-Kiddush Hashem doesn't feel pain. 
And one of the basis for that concept is here with Rabbi Akiva, whereby they were killing him in such a painful manner, yet he didn't feel it because he was dying al-Kiddush Hashem, and he was saying, It's a very difficult position, but obviously it's something where people who were fearful of giving up their lives, al-Kiddush Hashem, which was prevalent and a huge problem during the Crusaders and the Middle Ages for Jews, so this Mesorah somehow maybe made it easier or more palatable for them to give up their life, thinking that they won't feel the pain when they die, Al-Kiddush Hashem. But what's interesting about the Yushalmi is that the conversation that transpires in the Bavli between the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Akiva, actually in the Yushalmi takes place between the executioner and Rabbi Akiva, and the Yushalmi actually has the executioner of Rabbi Akiva as Tunus Rufus. And Tunus Rufus, who happens to be a character who's mentioned a number of times in Shas, who was the Roman governor of Judea, and there are many conversations or discussions, philosophical arguments between Tunis Rufus and Rabbi Akiva that are brought in the Midrashim and in the Gemara, as well as the Gemara in Bavli and Nidorim says that when Rabbi Akiva meets the wife of Tunis Rufus, that he does a number of things, including spitting, crying, and laughing. And over there, the over there, the Gemara explains why he did each of these things. And one of them was that he saw in the future that he was going to end up marrying the wife of Tunis Rufus. So it's obviously a machloka between the Babylon and Yushami as to whether Tunis Rufus was his executioner, because if that was the case, then Rabbi Kiva predeceased. Tunus Rufus, because according to the Bavli, he outlives Tunus Rufus and ends up marrying his wife who converts to Judaism. And so therefore, the Bavli story is about the Talmudim Rabbi Akiva challenging Rabbi Akiva in the situation, seeing him laugh or smile. Whereas the Yushami story is the executioner, Tunus Rufus, interacting with Rabbi Akiva in the same manner. And the Yushami story focuses much more on why he was smiling and laughing during the saying of the Kriyat Shema and maybe gives even more base that Mesora that the Bali would had that someone who's dying of Kiddush Hashem and focuses on the Kabbalat Machut Shemayim that are able to get through such a difficult form of punishment or torture. Right now the Gemara goes back to the last part of the Mishnah which is A person can't be frivolous when they are facing on towards the eastern gateway of Harabait, Shumakuvan, because that entranceway is aligned with Beit Kodeshea Kodoshim, directly opposite the Kodesh Kodoshim. That's only from the Tsofim and inward. It's later on between Rashi and the Baliatosophot as to whether Tsofim is a place, or Tsofim just means any place around Yushalayim from which you can see the Harabait. Tsofet means to, means an outlook or a, or a perch from which you can see things, you're at a high place. Over here, Rashi seems to explain like the Bali Tosfo later on, which means that it's any place where you can see the Harabayit from, as opposed to what he says later, which is that it was a exact location. But that's only true if he's on a Tzofim Lifnim, and inside of that area, Ubro'eh, and you actually can see the Kodesh HaKodeshim. Itmar Nami, we have a similar Memra from the Amoraim, Amorabba Braid, the Rabbi Chia Baraba, Chiamar Rabbi Yochanan. This is what Rabbi Yochanan says, a similar Mesora in Eretz Yisrael, similar to what we saw from Yudah Marab, and where you can see it, now he adds on, it's in addition, as long as there's no fence that's there. And many of the Mishra name, Bakhwin qualify this, that a wall means something that is close to you. It can't be a wall that's far away from you that separates. It rather has to be a wall that's right up against you. That's considered to be a separation. But if you're in an open area or a chatzer that has a wall further away, that's not enough of a separation. And it's when the Hashem is still present there, meaning that it sounds like when the Beit HaMikdash is still extant. So it has to be when the Beit HaMikdash is extant, and there has to be nothing separating between you and the Beit Kodesh Kodeshim. So Tan Rabbanan, now we bring a bright, someone who relieves themselves in Yudah, he should not sit facing east or west, 
but rather north-south. In the northern part of Eretz Yisrael, he should only relieve himself facing east-west and not north-south. The way Rashi explains it over here is that the area of Shevet Yehuda extends from the eastern border of Eretz Yisrael all the way to the western border of Eretz Yisrael. It takes up the full width of Eretz Yisrael. And then Yerushalayim is in the northern part of Shevet Yehuda. And therefore, if you're either to the west or the east of the area of Shevet Yehuda, if you're relieving yourself east-west, then either your front of your body that's naked or the back of your body that is naked is facing towards Yerushalayim, even though maybe here it's skewed off to the side a little south of it. Nevertheless, it's a problem, and that's why we advise you to go north-south. Now, even though there's a part of Yudad, which is directly south of the Migdash, there's less chance that north-south is going to be a problem for you because you got to be directly south of the Migdash for that to be true. By east-west, there's a lot more area which can be problematic, and therefore they advise when you're in Yudah to only relieve yourself north-south, not east-west. The opposite is true in the Galil. In the Galil, the only problem is south, because Yerushalayim is found south of you. Therefore, we tell you not to relieve yourself north-south, but at east-west, where there's going to be no problem of relieving yourself east-west. Rabbi Yossi Matir. But Rabbi Yossi, on the other hand, says it's not a problem. That the only problem is when you actually can see Harabayit, not when you're anywhere else. Umakom shein sham gader, and a place where there's no fence or wall that's blocking you. Ubezman shechina shora, and again in a place where the shechina is present, meaning at the time the Beit Hamikdash is extant. Chamim mosrim, chamim say it's a sur. Gemara says, chamim anu tanakama. Chamim sound exactly like the tanakama that they disagree with Rabbi Yosi. Igabenayut stadin. The difference between them is whether you have to be directly aligned or you can be skewed off. According to the tanakama, it didn't matter if you were directly aligned because if you were skewed off. In Yehuda, to the north or the south, you still couldn't go east-west and relieve yourself. Whereas according to the Chachamim, it's only a problem if you're directly aligned with the Mikdash that you can't sit east-west, or you're only north of the Mikdash that you can't sit north-south. But if you're skewed to the sides, then it's not a problem. And the Rabbanan are basically disagreeing with Rabbi Yossi, who says it's only when you're in proximity to Yerushalayim that it's a problem. I mean, saying it's not only when you're proximity, when you're far away, but that's only if it's where you're aligned with Yerushalayim. Tanya Yidach, we have another bright, similar to Tanakamba before, if you relieve yourself in Yudah, you shouldn't relieve yourself east-west. El Tzafon Dorom, but rather north-south, in the Galil, Tzafon Dorom Asur, north-south is problematic, Mizrach Marav is mutar. Rabiosi once again, Matir, Shayat, Rabiosi Omer, Lo Asru El Beroeh, the only problem is when it's visible or proximate to you. It's only when the Beit HaMikdash is extant is it problematic. So that's what we incorporated in Rabbi Yossi in the previous Brayta. Now it's split up between Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Kiva Oser Bechol Makom. Rabbi Kiva is Oser anywhere. Rabbi Kiva Ainu Tainakama. Sounds like the Tainakama again. The difference between them is, what does it mean everywhere? Rabbi Kiva, who says everywhere, literally means everywhere. Even in Chutzlaretz, there's a problem. Whereas, according to the Tanakhama, the only problem is in Yehuda and Galil, not outside of Eretz Yisrael. Rabbah v'shadion Livne Mizrach Marov. Rabbah used to set up his stones facing east-west, so therefore he could sit on the toilet made of these bricks in a north-south fashion. Azal his Talmud Abai went, and Shaduna at Safon turned them to be facing north-south, said he would end up having sitting east-west. Al-Rabbah, Rabbah went to the bathroom, and Tartzino, he fixed them and put them back the way he wanted them. Amar Manhai the Kamitzarli, who's the person that keeps moving my toilet around and make me face the other way? Ana Rabbi Akiva severely. I hold like Rabbi Akiva, the Marbachom Akomasur, that the problem is anywhere, even outside of Eretz Yisrael. Over here, there's a Machloket between the Mephashim as to whether the Chomakom of Rabbi Akiva, as to whether Rabbi Akiva's position has to do with the fact that Bavel is situated east of 
Eretz Yisrael, and therefore east-west is a problem because of the problem of facing towards the Makom HaMikdash, or is it a separate problem which we, the Gemara discussed in other places, that the Shekhinah is found in the Marav, is found in the west period, and therefore the problem for him in Chutzlar, is east-west, irrespective or independent of where Eretz Yisrael is. Obviously, the Nafkamina would be if you are north of Eretz Yisrael or west of Eretz Yisrael as to whether that din would change according to Rabbi Giva. If the problem is that Shekhinah Shorah Marab, then the din wouldn't change anywhere in the world. If it is because of Eretz Yisrael, then the din would change when you were found in different locations relative to Eretz Yisrael. Okay, we're going to stop here at the bottom of Samachal Fumadbet.